You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight's show is focusing on Galway, so I'm delighted to have Jacinta Dalton, Head of Department, Culinary Arts and Service Industries, International Hotel School, GMIT, and Fulcher Ireland Food Champion for the Wild Atlantic Way, who will be talking to Noel Leahy of Leahy Beekeeping and also JP McMahon, Chef Proprietor from Eat Galway and Symposium Director of Food on the Edge. And I'll be talking to Sheena Dignam from the Galway Food Tour. If at any point you want to get in touch with me here on the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So as I said tonight, we're focusing on Galway and our first guest is beekeeper Noel Leahy in conversation with Jacinta Dalton. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. So I'm here this afternoon with Noel Leahy. Uh, Noel, welcome to Best Possible Taste. That's your Noel is uh, Noel Leahy of Leahy Beekeeping and Schlieve Ochti Honey. So Noel, uh, I'm sitting here and I suppose uh, if we had television, we'd be able to see the fabulous uh, array of goods you have in front of us. You have your honey and your various other products. So just before we maybe do a little bit of tasting and tell all the listeners how amazing the produce is, can you just give me an indication as to how you got into beekeeping, first of all? Yeah, sure. I suppose we grew up with bees um, when we were kids at home, you know, I suppose in, in, in Kildema, Lockray. Um, and it was more by, I suppose, in the, for lots of years, there wasn't a hell of a lot done with the bees. My dad died when we were all small at home. There was eight of us in the house. Um, he passed away when he was 43 years of age, unfortunately. Um, so I suppose there was, a, there was traditions that was left aside. And... In 2010, when the the big recession came, that I was I had I I had been involved in the building trade. I was a subcontract bricklayer, stonemason, and the work dried up. And um, I was and at that stage, it was time for me to my back was telling me to stop, stop, stop. You know that kind of way. Yeah. So we went back out, back farming, back doing a bit of beekeeping, and back helping out on the land and doing a bit of farming and. There was a couple of hives at home like that. Now the hives were still there, thank God. And we started to fix up the hives to stop them from falling apart. And the passion came back again and grew and it grew from there. And we started to um, build up our hives. And then after a year, we looked at it, you know, I suppose with the recession there, things that money was tight. We looked at, well, is there a way of making a few quick pound out of this? So we looked at it and we, I spoke to a few different people, um, including Richard, Richard here and um, Richard Nielsen. And I spoke to Natalie in McCambridge's and they gave me some great sound, solid advice, what I needed to do. So I went away, came back 12 months later. I said, right, guys, I have a product. And it grew from there. So how, how difficult was it for you to get your product off the ground and into the marketplace as we know it today? Um, I suppose once I suppose for me, once I once I, I suppose the context of, you know, getting good solid advice from the likes of Richard Nielsen here in the in the GMIT and the likes of Natalie McCambridge's and a couple of more people like that, you know, that gave me good advice and sent me on the right road, it helped me, you know, and I suppose we have a great product. We have a unique product. It's hundred percent pure. We add nothing, we take nothing away. We've nothing but love as I say myself, you know. And it, it's adding that, you know, so when you have a good pure product People want it, you know, and I suppose we are in a unique area in the west of Ireland, you know, as well, that we, we don't have a big issue with pollution. We don't have any problems with monocropping or, you know, even pesticides. It's not a big problem. 
Our problem is the weather. Ah, you know, but is you know once I I went back into McCambridge's, we got we got our products into McCambridge's initial issue. They would that would have been the very first shop, and um, it grew from there. And a little bit of lucky PR, as I'll call it, we're in at the Galway Food Festival, and um, J- uh, there was the chef in the Ardlan Hotel. He put something up on Twitter at the time to say that uh, he was using that he had used her honey in a dish, and um, the following day the phone was ringing. And so there was a few little things like that. The McKinnas, John and Sally McKenna, gave me a little bit of a PR at the food festival as well the same year. That's right. And it was the little things like that that just grew. It was, I always call this, this was a business by accident, not by careful planning. But I but think, as you said, because of your passion, it's probably grown into the great success story that it actually is right now. Yeah, we're very passionate about what we do. We're very passionate about bringing our the best we can mm-hmm. To the to the to the shelf and ensuring that everyone gets a good gets you know the taste the flavors the the, the smell and that sense of the west of Ireland and the mountain is what you're is what you're creating there and it's bringing that across and ensuring bringing it across to people and explain to people the importance between the medicinal values and the values that is that it is in a raw honey so this is what I was going to ask you next uh, Noel I'm a huge fan of your of your honey I have it in my porridge every morning I detest yeah. porridge You're well <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely detest porridge but obviously I'm trying to be healthy and yes. obviously when I first met you you explained to me about the medicinal properties that yes. are in your honey and in indeed in Irish honey generally yeah. and I suppose there's a lot of myths out there with regards to all the honey that we we first of all I suppose assume is Irish honey on the shelves yeah. and then we also have the imported honeys that come from New Zealand, i.e. the Manuka honeys, yeah. that are sold to us as being good for your health and with all the various properties that... Can you just explain to our listeners, you know, what is the difference between eating a local honey versus one of these other types of honey? Well, I suppose when you take in a local honey, you know, and a local honey means you're taking in all of the pollens, you're taking in everything that's in the air. That's building up your... That's building up the antibodies and your, and your whole immune system because you're taking in what's within your own locality. You know, for, for the likes of hay fevers, allergies, everything else, when you're taking little shots of pollens and everything that's in the air in, in through the honey, it's building you up the whole time. So it's helping to build build you up for that. Um, when you look at a lot of the the, 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 the cheaper honeys, as I call them, on the, that's on the market, on the in, the in the supermarket shelves, unfortunately, you know, and, you know the, the, there has been tests done over the years and it has been proven that a lot of it has never seen a bee. Unfortunately, you know, you're, you're, you're what you call your bulkers. And can you explain, can you just explain that, uh, obviously, again, to the likes of myself yeah. or the uninitiated, it has never seen a bee. What what does that mean? Or like, how does that even machi- occur? Machi- machi- right. Machinery has, you know, modern technology is amazing what machinery can produce anymore. You know, and mm-hmm. we've seen it across in a, in a wide variety of foods, you know, that you're buying a food. But is it actually that food, you know? Yes. And that's the problem we have out there, you know, and for a lot of a lot of the cheaper honeys and a lot of the mass produced and bulk produced, but mass produced honeys, um, they're machine made. They're, they're bulked up with corn syrups and with artificial sugars. And I suppose that's really important, again, for our listeners to understand the yeah. reading of labels. Oh, and I yeah. suppose it's something that I, you know, you and I and the various, uh, I suppose, other activities yeah. we would do through food education outside yes. of um, our day jobs, let's say. Sure. Uh, we're trying to teach people to read labels so that they know actually what they're consuming. I mean, I'm looking here in front of me and I, I know we have, you haven't got the benefit of being able to see in front of, yes. uh, our, our listeners haven't got the benefit, but you have four jars of honey here in front of us and uh, they're 100%. That's all you can see on the label, yeah. 100% honey. Yeah. 
and that's special. You know, so as I said, we add nothing, we take nothing away. We don't pasteurize our honeys. We don't heat treat. There's no manipulation being done to it. We coarse filter. So the coarse filter allows all of the pollens and everything to, to pass through in the filters. So there's nothing we don't. It's a very, very simple process. And, you know, by, by not adding or taking anything away, you're not distorting the honey. You're not changing it. Yeah. You know, and that's, that is like, you know, for a lot of, any of the honeys that's on the market shelves are all be, have all been pasteurized. Right. Most of them have been pasteurized. So the goodness has been taken out yeah, of them. You pasteurize something, mm-hmm. even if there was good honey in it, mm-hmm. there's nothing left there. Right. It's all been pasteurized. You know, you spoke earlier on of Manuka honey. Yes, if you can get genuine Manuka honey, and I, I put the if into it big time, um, you will get, you know, there, there are medicinal values in it. I, I know without, but there's as good a medicinal values as a jar of heather honey there that is just coming off production at the moment. And it's as good, if not better, than any, manu- than any Manuka honey. But it also has the local pollens. Right. That is the big, that is the big key. It's the, what's, what's in the local air? Now, I think you told me before um, in the past that uh, the best honey is the honey that's within 50 kilometers of where uh, you're yeah. living. That would be, that would be, yeah. You're, you know, if you look at the structure of the, the air and the distance, you know, that kind of way. Now, you know, Ireland is a small mm-hmm. area, but yeah, you're kind of keep within your locality because now you're picking, you know, the fl- the bees will have visited the flowers with the visit the little herbs and the, and the wild grasses that's within that area and kind of the structure of the soil and the, um, and the rock formations would be kind of similar, yes. you know, within that area. You could go a little bit further at times, but generally, I always say to people, buy what's buy from the your local beekeeper. Hundred percent. And you know, I I've lots of good friends of mine all over the country that are genuine beekeepers selling their honey, small operation locally, like myself. And you know, it's it's they're amazing guys. So do you so find it challenging to be able to explain the price difference between your honey versus some of the cheaper brands out there? And again, how do you how do you get across that? Um, I, th- I think social media and the whole structure of education, even within the schools and the colleges, has changed. I suppose if you look at the whole how society has come around in the last number of years that we had, we went from if you look at the 70s, it was very much everyone had their own plot in the back garden and they grew their own food and then we went in from there, we went into a, an era of it had to be in a plastic bag mm-hmm. and it had to be cheap on a shelf, you know. But that that has come around again. And now that the, the generation that's there, the, the, the younger generation in particular, are asking and they know and they'll come to me to the, to the, to the market stall or, you know, when, I, when I, we do markets and we talk to people, they'll say, they'll, they'll ask, is it raw honey? Has it been heat treated? Has it been pasteurised? So people they, are becoming more informed. Oh God, yeah, they are. They're mm. much more um, informed, educated, and I think social media has a big play within that, and you know, in helping people that. But I think we, you know, for my own end as well, you know, we've we've started doing a lot of projects going into schools. Yeah, can you just um, tell me a little bit about what you're doing here as an example? Because yeah. it's, I find that incredibly interesting. Yeah, I suppose it's part of it. And, you know, and it's part of you looking at, you know, leading into next year for the whole, you know, the, we're the region of gastronomy, which is an amazing uh, feat and an ama- something fantastic to look forward to. But um, I suppose it started for me, a couple of local schools asked me, would you know, would you come in and talk to the talk to the children a little bit about the bees and everything else? So we talk about the bees. We leave the birds out of it for that one, OK? <laughs> But we talk about the bees and where they fit into the whole ecosystem that, you know, how they're, they're so important to the whole start of the food chain. These are the guys that pollinate the flower, that'll grow the seed, that'll grow the plant that becomes our food. They're the, they're the guys that will, 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 will pollinate the little herbs and the, all those spices and, and, the, and those alpha grasses that the cattle and sheep will eat 
that gives us gives our meat the flavour. And that's you know, without all of those things, our, our food would be very bland. Indeed. So it's it's by doing all that we go into the schools, we do that little bit of an education programme with them. And yeah, we bring in the honeys, get them to taste the honey. I have an observation hive we'll bring in as well and they'll see the hive, working hive, and um it's it's amazing. It is. And but it's it's unless we get out there and re and educate the children come going forward that this is what pure food t- tastes like, guys. This is what good food is. And, and and this is what natural produce can can taste like. All of a sudden, it's, you know, that's the education we need to be bringing across. We give that to our youth members. Mm-hmm. The next generation will come along. And yes, they will come along and they will they will know what, my, what, what raw honey is. Sure. They'll know what pure honey is. And they will go and buy from the local beekeeper and buy the pure pure stuff okay oh it's absolutely it's it's yeah. it's essential that we're teaching this this oh, to the is, children yeah. for that's, sure that re-education of of how what, what we eat and i i i always say at home if you can't read what's on the ingredients you know you, you have a look at it again i i i used to, i used to have a um i used to have a um a theory that if there were more than five ingredients on it i wouldn't eat it at all yeah so, so you're, you're safe today. There's one ingredient. That's it. So and just just in terms of these ones here in front of me now, you've got four jars here. You've, yeah. This is obviously the Schlievach, the Heather honey, which yeah. is your 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 main honey. No, the the wildflower would be the main one. This okay. is the wildflower. Um, just said to, I suppose your wildflower honey is your main honey, and that would be mainly your clover, um, your clover, dandelion, blackberry, and lots of white thorn. The white thorn this year in particular was amazing. So love beautiful nuttiness coming through from yes. the white thorn. That would be what we call our main main crop honey. Then we'd have specialised specialised crops. The specialised crops would be the, the heather honey would come late in the year when everything else is finished flowering. We get a very minimum amount of amount of it. Not a massive not a ma- massive volume of this one, the heather honey. But um it's beautiful honey, moory, strong, very distinctive. Doesn't flow. It's it's a semi set honey, it's sets like a jelly. Um there's a there's a Latin name for it, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> I'm not going That's to. Okay. Um and then we tried this year, we tried infusing a little bit of honey with, with the elderflower. I have to say, and um, listeners, I'm very just, sorry you're not able yeah. to taste this, but yeah. um, this elderflower is just incredible. Yeah, just something we started playing around with with a friend of mine this year, and we started to say, let's see how this mm. will work. You know, we looked at, so we might do a little bit more of, more of that next year, um, or maybe over the winter. You know, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of elderflower dried at the moment, so we'll see how it goes. Excellent. And then the last one there was, it's a dark, smoky honey that I actually took out of an old hatched house. Like it's almost black in colour, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's quite dark and distinctive. And um, it was something that, again, it just happened by accident. Mm-hmm. Where I was in taking out an old swarm out of a roof. And we took the honey out and put the honey in a bucket, brought it home, left it there for a couple of weeks. And I'm like, I better do something with this guy. It was real black, distinctive, and even the even the you scent can, you of you can actually the, even, taste oh, the smoke yeah, of you it. can take the, taste the the, mm. the the smoky, and there's a bit of old sort of a tetchy feel to it, you know, or smell to it. Yes, but a beautiful, distinctive honey, you know, something I'd probably never be able to repeat it. But for a one-off thing, I just you know, it's it's about I suppose I'd bring it along for the kids to taste and for people to taste to show them that how different things can affect the taste of honey, and it's. The same every year, particularly if we look at our wildflower honey, each year from the same apiary or for the same area of ground, I could have, the, the honey will be quite different in taste. And it'll the, it, the flower will determine the taste of the honey. Okay, interesting. And it's what flower has the stronger player. That's that's really what it is, okay? Fantastic. Now, just moving over to the other little array of uh, what I would call Christmas stocking fillers. Oh, yeah. So you've obviously diversified somewhat into another range of yeah. products. So tell me a little bit about those. Uh, I suppose... It's like 
for, for us as beekeepers, you know, we have, when we extract the honey, we take the honey off the bees, we take off the wax cappings, we have to uncap the honey to allow, allow it to flow. And we're left with beautiful virgin wax cappings, we call them, or virgin beeswax. And with that, um, we decided, um, again, it was a case of more by chance than anything else. I needed a hand cream. My hands were shot to bits from mm. cement and everything from working on the building sites. So my daughter initially made the lavender hand cream for me. And uh, it worked. worked amazingly well. Cleared up my hands, cleared up all the gogs and calluses and cuts on it. And it worked extremely well. So then uh, Heather, my daughter, decided, well, I want a hair wax. So she made the hair wax for herself. And we started to look a little bit more. And before we knew it, we had a little range of products made from, I suppose, from lip balms, hand creams, foot creams, hair wax. And then we decided, we'd, well, Heather decided she would, she'd do a beard wax for all her, all her beard friends. So the beard wax was invented as well. And they, they work amazingly. Again, beeswax, all the other ingredients, the coconut oil, the shea butters, we use organic oils and, and organic. Again, you know, keeping it natural, keeping it simple. And where do you sell these products? Um, we sell oh. these mainly in the uh, mainly at markets mm-hmm. and we have our online shop as well. Okay. Um, and the online shop, they do very well in the online shop. You just Do you, do you know the uh, online link off the top of your head just for if any of our the listeners online, are interested the top in shopping? Head, if you go, went to our website into uh, www.leahybeekeeping.com and the online shop is there. Um, you can also try find us through Facebook, through uh, the Honey. As I would say, uh, we're coming into that time of year now where people are starting to think about oh, Christmas see, gifts. Yeah, and gosh, yeah. I'd be fabulous, delighted. Yeah. Fabulous. No, you know, I'm not the, giving the you a hint healing, at all. The healing properties within them are amazing as well. And, you know, as a good, as a good stock and fillers. But there is amazing healing properties because, again, we talk about the healing properties within our honeys. When we melt our beeswax, we'll only bring anything to melting point, so we're not killing any of the any of the properties or any of the, any of the medicinal values within it or any of the antibacterial values within it. So it brings that right across into the creams. So we have a cream that have great has great healing properties, antibacterial properties, and good healing values. If you take the lavender hand cream for for instance, just as a, as an example, we started out that with just a hand cream, and then a friend of mine got she said I put on burns, brilliant. Heal them up, no scars, no nothing. Incredible. And now we have lots, lots of mammies and daddies and parents buying them for uh, eczema. I have uh, parents that are buying it for the children with eczema and psoriasis, and um, they haven't had to use um, any cortisone or any anything like that for over six yeah, yeah. So the benefits are amazing. Superb. I don't know, like for, for a cream that has just uh, beeswax, sweet almond oil, calendula oil, and vitamin E. Um, they're simple products, you know. Again, you can all you can read them. There's yeah. less than five, and it just sent to you. You're still okay. Not, no. <laughs> so no, so they're amazing products. Obviously, you've had an incredible journey to date, yeah. and your products are widely available in the west of Ireland and beyond, I believe. Yeah. Um, what are your plans for the future? I suppose our plans are, you know, we're starting to send a little bit um, overseas and stuff like that. Um, we might look at expanding into the, the English market or maybe into the likes of London, the higher end markets. Um, but, you know, for the moment, I'm happy to maybe grow our beekeeping. Um, we've started food bee tours, actually. I forgot about that one. Um, we've ex- started our bee tours this year. and the, It's a hands-on experience with our bee tours. So the idea is you come in, you'll put on the bee suit. We'll give you gloves and bee suits. We'll tug you out. <laughs> and you'll get that experience of seeing how the hive works, see how the hive ticks. And it's a very powerful experience. Uh, really good so that's kind of something we're developing as a sideline into with an aim to grow it a little bit more next year and again looking at for the region gastronomy next year particularly about maybe developing that more and having a regular tour i'd like to develop it up to maybe have a regular maybe two or three tours a week coming in i think up to 15 people 
that'd be a nice, a nice, a nice little add-on. And again, it's it's educating people. Yes. It's 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 all about education here. Everything educator the generate the people. What is good food? How a hive ticks? Yes, yes, a bee is more stingy on there. They're, they're, they're quite harmless actually, because mm-hmm. if a bee stings you, they'll die. Yes. So they don't really go out there. They're not aggressors. Time. Oh God, no, they're not on a mission. I'm going to get, I'm going to give that one a lash here, you know. <laughs> well, no, it was. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure incredibly informative for everyone that is, that is listening in. So we wish you every success going yeah. forward into the future. Into the future, and we look forward to seeing lots more products from Shlivakti Honey. Yeah. We'll start to develop. I know we have a few more creams coming on, hopefully for Christmas. And yes, stock of fillers, definites, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, find us on the website. And love to see anyone popping in for a visit. Look, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you All so right. much, Noel. Thank you, guys. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, Jacinta Dalton was in conversation with beekeeper Noel Leahy. If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 9am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Still to come tonight, Jacinta talks to JP McMahon but before that as tonight's show is focusing on Galway and its wonderful culinary attributes one of the best ways to get to know an area and its food scene is through a food tour so I met up with Sheena Dignam from Galway Food Tours who makes sure no food or drink stone is unturned Cheers Chin Chin Salut Schleinte Sheena it's great to be here in Galway with you and you're on the Galway Food Tours tell us how that all came about Hi Sharon, thanks a million for inviting me. Um, so yeah, I run Galway Food Tours. I started three years ago and it's kind of just uh, developed in, and gathered momentum as it kind of, uh, as the years moved on. Um, I originally, how I thought of the idea was when I was running a chocolate shop in Dublin um, called Coco Atelier and uh, people would stop in the chocolate shop on this food tour um, and come in and try some chocolates and macaroons and uh, and away they went and I think that's just such a class idea. So um, between the jigs and the reels I just decided to, um, I really wanted to move to Galway and when I did move to Galway I realised that there wasn't a food tour in place and we have such an array of fabulous producers. So I um, I said, OK, be stupid not to make it happen. So I did. You grew up in France. Yes, I grew up in France. So France, Dublin, but you're not French, are you? No, I'm Irish, yeah. Um, so grew up in France with Irish parents and yeah. spent a lot of time, a lot of your youth there. Yes, yeah. And then back to Dublin and then over to Galway. Yeah. So whenever you're an outsider, a blow-in, like mm. I am in Newcastle West, do you see everything through different eyes and especially from a food perspective yes absolutely um you know when i was blown away by such amazing selection of producers that we had the restaurants you know we have two michelin star restaurants we have you know award-winning restaurants um great cafes great producers that where you can go in to local shops and buy local produce which is very important you know so all together you know I just think it's absolutely um, a fantastic uh, setup that we have here in Galway and very happy to be part of this whole um, 
whole movement of uh, food and tourism because it is something that's definitely uh, that is gaining in momentum uh, over the last couple of years people do want to meet the local guys meet the how they make a certain produce and um, know where to go the off, be off the beaten track kind of places so um it makes absolute sense and i think when because i moved to Galway, i didn't know about all these places i kind of made it my mission to see where these places were and kind of that's how i built up the the itineraries that i use so you have different itineraries depending on the time of year or what people are looking for but just give us an example of a typical food tour of galway where do you start so, for example, today's tour, we uh, we started in McCambridge's, so the oldest store in Galway, still a family-run business, and they, they pride themselves on using very local produce on their shelves. They actually have over 300 local producers on their shelves, which is amazing. Um, so we start off with a whiskey tasting there, um, a whiskey, apple brandy and pochine. All of these are paired with the local cheeses, local um, meats. Um, and then from there we go to uh, the oldest bakery in Galway and a lot of history tied in there since 1876 they've been making bread so you can imagine um, the recipes that they have and the stories they have to tell uh, then we would go to um, Nocton's where we do a, a beer tasting a local beer is only made for Nocton's which are amazing um, so it sounds like there's a lot of alcohol on it to get them into the right mood to start off. You know, just a little panache of, of alcohol never hurts anyone. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> no, I'm in total agreement. Do you get a lot of non-drinkers, so people that might say, no, I don't drink? or Yeah, or most you would people... get a mix. You know, in general, people are willing to, you know, it's only a taste, you know. So, yeah. you know, people are willing to taste um, um but yeah, I do have, you know, people that don't drink. And then I also have amazing juices that are made locally as well that I can offer. So that's always an option, you know. And, you know, we're going into all these different places like trying sushi, Irish sushi, crab on brown bread. Um, you've got some oysters, um, bean to bar chocolate, um, you know, courgette and lime buns, you know, curries. The list goes on, you know, so it's uh, it all depends on what's uh, what's available on the day. But in general, like people are definitely fed and watered at the end of it. So about how many tastings over how many hours do they do they get um, to enjoy? So around two and a half hours for my daytime tour. And that would take you to uh, you get around nine tastings in that. OK, yeah. Do you find that the the people that you get, the guests on your tour, so to speak, they're very diverse? Do they come from different backgrounds? Are they different nationalities? There's definitely, I work, I've built up a rapport with the, with the businesses in France. Uh, so I work a lot of my tours in French. Um, but I, being in the Lonely Planet Guide has definitely helped me with the American tourists and I do have a lot um, and a lot of Canadians um, I do get a lot of locals and on my evening food tours and uh, yeah then I get you know I suppose more um, uh, national tourists so people coming from Dublin sorry going to go away for the for the weekend or something wanting to something to do and you know as much as you know there's there's pros and cons of TripAdvisor you know I, I am ranked up on there for you know things to do in Galway and people would click on they can book directly so it does help you know as well absolutely because um, people do use it yeah. like it or, or loathe it people yeah. definitely do use it when you started to do the tours did you envisage them growing into such a success and to have so many different itineraries were you strategic in that or were you very kind of surprised by how successful they were um 
I kind of hoped that they would be successful, but I was mainly doing it to start off because I started another company that is for French tourists only, uh, bringing them more of a high-end experience, bringing them to local producers and staying in really beautiful places like Regan's Castle, etc. But that's very niche and it takes a long time to get that up and running. So I needed something so I wouldn't go insane. And I really love the food tour idea anyway, but I didn't expect it to take on as much as it is taking on now because it's there's a lot of different angles we're going out into now we've started the wild atlantic way food tours we're starting going out to connemara the iron islands we're going down to county clare for next year uh so you know it's all it's all taking a, a different dimension that i wasn't expecting it to take i was just basically fixing myself on city tours and it kind of just gradually organically developed into different ones and you must find that it's nearly like 24-7 because like, we're out eating and drinking a lot of the day. So in your head, you don't realise you're working all the time, but you are working all the time because something happens, somebody says something, somebody does something, and you think, oh, that could be u- useful for the next tour about such and such, or that could, could turn into a tour in itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's always something, like, always... There's always something happening. Like we're going to go to the launch of the food on the edge there now this evening. It's a, uh, you know, that's such a, an amazing uh, uh, symposium put together by by JP and his team. And you know, there's so many other things happening. Like apparently, there's supposed to be the reopening of the whiskey distillery. Um, you know, the talks of like the indoor market happening. All these things now, whether they're rumors are a truth I don't but there apparently it will happen but if it does it'd be amazing and um and yeah so I'm always thinking like you know oh that'd be so cool to include that or you know um JP's opening another uh, restaurant next in the next couple of weeks so that I'll definitely be stopping in there on my tour as well you know it's all good it's great well speaking of restaurants I would imagine you get a lot of phone calls emails tweets asking you to recommend places to eat in Galway mm. so where are your top three restaurants cafes do they have to be does it have to be three <laughs> <laughs> well let's start off with one or two um well first of all I love Kai um I'm biased I work there as well so um but I really love and stand by what they do I think it's amazing Art Bia as well beautiful um, the seasonality in their dishes is unreal. A treat, loam is amazing. Um, Dila for their brunch. Sorry, that's more than three. Um, so you're really spoiled for choice. So much so, so much so. And it's it great. depends what somebody's looking for. Are they a family? Are they a couple? Is it a romantic yes, night? Is exactly. it children to be fed? Yeah. There, there's, there's something there to tick whatever box mm. needs to be ticked. Yeah. So you're very, very spoiled. Oh, it's extremely, extremely spoiled rotten. Do you cook yourself? I'm not the best of cooks. As much as I would like to be, I'm not. I do enjoy the moment where I'm drinking wine to pair with the the food itself. But to actually, you know, cook a meal from A to Z, it could be a bit risky. So if you had to cheat at cooking something, there must be lots of nice Galway or or West of Ireland produce there that doesn't take a lot of work. Mm but provides a lot of taste so what sort of products would you use in that instance I love 
like to do a proper steak tartare, you know, with the Brady's beef, uh, just unreal. You don't need much, like, just if you prepare it to cut it thinly and uh, correctly and use the ringredients, it doesn't take that much time. And to the uninitiated, that is raw mince. Yeah, raw mince. Yeah. With a raw egg. With do you a do raw the egg. And yeah. some onions. So onions, capers, um, uh, cornichon, you know, the little, the little gherkins, um, and salt and pepper. Is that a dish that appeals to the Irish or to the Galway people that you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm very surprised at how Irish people, I think, will try anything uh, once, you know? I mean, whether then afterwards it works or not, you know? But I find it also very interesting when I get people to try the oysters. Um, I get people to try oysters with a little bit of buttermilk, which is really nice. It uh, makes, you know, takes out the, I suppose, the sourness, sour taste of the buttermilk going with the saltiness of the oyster. It just makes it so creamy. It's unreal. Anyway, so that's my new favorite thing. But when I get people to try it, the oysters, you know, it's love or hate immediately, but at least they'll try it, you know. Yeah, and no, that's said, great that yeah, they try them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I think, yeah, they'd be willing to try it now, whether they like it and get past that. You know, do you get many children coming on the tour with their parents or grown ups? A little bit. I don't really advertise for children. I just would put myself in children's shoes and I think I'd be bored to tears, you know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of history. There is a bit of drinking involved, you know, and pairing, you know, uh, foods. You know, the best thing that would be good for them would be the chocolate shop. And maybe the we go to a, an afternoon tea rooms and stuff like that. That could be interesting. But if not, yeah. I I do get some children on and the children that do come on are very interested, you know, very, you know, um, they've been eating, you know, food and being aware of what food they've been eating for a long time. So that's good. But yeah. So it definitely is a tour then for if you're bringing young people, they have to have an interest in food, oh, yeah. which is great yeah. because I do know some small children not mine I must add but <laughs> I do know some small children that would be great to try things and they probably would enjoy a tour yeah. like that yeah well it sounds really interesting and congratulations on the success of it today it's really taken off for you I'm delighted for you. you and if people want to find out more about it where's the best place for them to go yeah so they can go on to www.goawayfoodtours.com Sheena thanks so much for talking thanks to me today thanks Sharon cheers you're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, I was talking to Sheena from the Galway Food Tour. And earlier in the programme, Jacinta Dalton was in conversation with beekeeper Noel Leahy. If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 9am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and also on the taste.ie website voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Now, when you think about food in Galway, one of the individuals that comes to mind immediately is J.P. McMahon, a man of many projects and businesses. Jacinta Dalton sat down with him to find out more about his Food in the Edge Symposium for Chefs and Food Enthusiasts and his latest restaurant venture. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. So, welcome J.P. McMahon to Best Possible Taste. Uh, JP, you're chef proprietor at Eat Galway, which includes Anir, Cava and Eat at Massimo and also Symposium Director of Food on the Edge. 
So I suppose uh, if we kick off talking a little bit first about Food on the Edge and where the inspiration came from. Um, I suppose Food on the Edge came out of um, my inspiration. I suppose I was inspired by traveling around to a lot of different places and seeing how um, they promoted their own food culture. And I was, suppose I was very inspired by this. And I always felt that we didn't promote our own food at home enough. Um, and we have amazing produce. So I suppose Food on the Edge was... was um, was a way of of um of highlighting the produce, but also a way of um bringing a lot of international chefs to Ireland in order for them to see um what we have. And I suppose you you mentioned there about us not promoting. Why do you think that we don't have the confidence as a nation, uh, to stand up and shout about our produce in the same way that the likes of Denmark would and so on? I I suppose it's very I suppose it's very complicated. I think I think some of it has to do with um. Uh, with the famine, I think some of it has to do with colonization and and only kind of really establishing our own culture less than a hundred years ago, um and 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 also I think religion played a part in that and I think we always looked at food in a very kind of austere way and as a vehicle for hunger and we didn't have that way of I suppose celebrating food the way the the French, the Italian and Spanish had. But at the same time, we were producing all this food and sending it to them, all of our mussels, all of our oysters, all of our beef. Um, and like Denmark, I suppose, is a recent example in the last, say, 15 and 20 years. Um, they have really revitalized and changed the way they think about food. And, and that came from, I suppose, a lot of chefs. It also came at a government level when they realized that that's what they had to do. Um, so I suppose, we're, for me, we're at the at the beginning of that in Ireland, maybe we're five years in or so, or, but we're, we're very much, um, I suppose, a new player in, in the realm of, of trying to use food tourism and use food as a way of promoting, uh, promoting our country, other than just having tourists to come to look at Ireland, um, which was probably the tourism for the majority of the 20th century. Ireland was just a place that you could go to and look at, and we still have that. But we need to follow through with, um, with uh, I suppose, a culture of food. And, and we've had food in, in Ireland, like, uh, forever. And I suppose it's just um, in, in different ways, we, um, we haven't, um, we really haven't, I suppose, promoted it. We haven't identified our, ourselves with, um, with, uh, with food. Like, when you define Irishness, we, we left food out of that. And, like, if you think about the French, I mean, food and wine goes part and parcel and the Italians. Um, so hopefully, I mean, this generation and next gener- the, the next generation that we'll, um, we'll be able to um, uh, put that into, our, into the makeup of our identity. And I know earlier we were speaking to Noel Leahy from Slivakti Honey and he was talking about the importance of education in the schools with the younger children. And he's starting doing it on, a, I suppose, an informal level, bringing his honey and his bees into the schools. Obviously, I know you, you also uh, would be involved with a number of schools as well. How important is that in the overall scheme of things? No, I think it's really important. And one of the initiatives this year with Food of the Edge, we're working with them, Educate Together in Galway, to try and and show the kind of reach of Food in the Edge. And for some people, Food in the Edge is very much a a chef-led event and that focuses on chefs. But really, when you look at food and the amount of people eat and the amount of um, food that is in our culture, we, um, we really have to spread it out into as many places as possible, into our schools, our hospitals, our colleges. Um, and I think it's really important that the children understand 
um, not only where food comes from, but also that um, that we we are a good food nation. And um, I think that what what I suppose what, what we really need to do when we then Noel goes into the schools and I go into the schools, that for me I'd like to see that um, developing into as part of the curriculum. And like we have a lot of volunteers all over the country working with schools. Um, but really what I'd like to see is some sort of food subject in at primary school level that takes in science and agriculture and geography and just to just to get the kids started and um, um, and from talking to the principal educator together the that's one thing even even in the curriculum at the moment in Ireland there's no time for eating food um, so they have recreation time so they can play and they put the eating into that but there isn't any designated time for eating it's in, a fast 10 minutes out of the yeah, lunchbox in, yeah yeah that's but really what we need to do is spend a little bit more time on food and have half an hour because i think food is just as important as maths and english and um, because what happens is you i suppose educate the kids in maths and english and irish and history and then they they go out and they have no sense of food and then they have a, a poor diet and they they don't recognize um good providence and what food costs and to try and get the kids to uh, to understand that I know they've done it in some parts of transition level. They have you can take food as a as a module, but they really need like they've they've started it, but they really need to 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 fold that in um into primary and, and secondary. And I think that's part part of the reason why some of the other European countries have been incredibly successful because they actually have an integrated food education program. I again I, I know I've mentioned Denmark before, but they made a conscious decision. Uh, I think it was five years ago that a uh, by twenty seventeen. I think they said uh, 70% of their schools would be all organic mm. and they're actually at that target already. So I, that's that's phenomenal achievement. Yeah, no, Denmark is, I, I, I keep, I suppose, um, looking to Denmark um, for, for inspiration. And, and the great thing about Denmark is that if, when you, I mean, Denmark has, has um, probably the, 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 the most organic farming in, in Europe. But yet when you talk to the people in in Denmark, they feel like they're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're yes. not doing enough. Mm-hmm. So I think it's 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 very positive that from the outside, Denmark looks amazing. But they still have difficulties, and I think it's what we need to do is have more um, proactive um, policies. Like we can't just get loads of farmers to change just from uh, conventional to organic, because because we've trained a generation of farmers to think this way, and we taught them, and so we can't just change the rules of the game. And what the Danish have realized is that that. We need. They need the farmers as part of that. Pro- they're, they're they're part of the problem, but they're also the solution. So they need to re re educate and retrain, and need to say, well, okay, in ten years' time, we're going to have this and this. But we need to start putting in, um, some sort of structure, um, at a government level to say, well, we have two percent of our farms are organic in Ireland. Like maybe by twenty twenty, we need five percent, and maybe by twenty twenty five, we need seven percent. But if we put nothing in. Then we'll we'll just stay at two percent, and because it it'll just be down to the proactive farmers who want to go organic, and there won't be any um, any benefits for them. I mean, it costs more. It's um it, it is it is uh, more difficult, and it's a lot easier to be a conventional farmer and spray everything. It's easier, and the farmers have to make money, and they have to uh, run a business, and people have to be fed. But the whole system, and this goes back to I suppose a European level, the whole system of food production. In Europe is is wrong because it's subsidized so we're paying we pay tax to get cheap food that makes us sick and then we and then we and then we, we need money to go to hospitals so like it's it's all backwards I mean really yes. food 
like food is being produced at less than cost and we pay for it through taxes and so it's it's all it's all very very um messed up but i do think at least in denmark they're trying to think about these things um and i but, think uh, sorry i suppose platforms like food on the edge is raising profile around all of these hot topics and uh, the, the the discussions that all of the top chefs of the world are having mm-hmm. when they come to galway but how on earth did you attract these big name guys to come to galway some of them probably never even heard of galway yeah or even or, or even, even ireland or even in fact ireland. no um i suppose i mean it, it's um um, I mean, the the a lot of people um love the idea of Ireland. Um, and Ireland, I suppose, has a Ireland as a country has a very good PR internationally as a as a as a welcoming place. Um, so when I invited them, a lot of these chefs, some of um, whom I had I had met at various different different events. Um, I mean, they all wanted to come to Ireland and experience Ireland. They knew nothing about the food. Um. And um, uh, I suppose the social media played a lot um, um, in the in the I suppose in, in, in putting the event together. I suppose people are easier to contact now than they've ever been. I mean, twenty years ago, I think it wouldn't have been possible just to I mean to um, chat to fifty chefs internationally and and get responses for them. But I suppose it's it's a lot easier now. Um, I suppose it just, I mean, the event took about, the first year, took about a year and a half to organise and it was just going back and forward and, and asking people they want to come and trying to get them to uh, speak about their, their food philosophy and, um, I mean, the broad team of Food and the Edge is, um, is the future of food and really to try and to, to get uh, the chefs to speak, um, to, to create some sort of um, inspirational impact for the audience and for for I suppose people in the in the food industry in Ireland and so it's it's like food industry professionals like hoteliers and restaurateurs and even farmers I mean all I don't think there isn't anybody not involved in food in the country because even if you eat you're a consumer of food so like it, it affects everybody um and I suppose um that chefs uh, particularly high profile chefs are 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 great at uh, drawing uh, attention to some of the issues. That um uh, that we have whether it's food poverty in in various places um in uh, even in 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 in, uh, in America and Ireland I mean the the, the, the these issues are um the issues are exist every, globally they're everywhere mm. it's not just when we think of food poverty we often think of developing countries but I mean, there's food poverty in Dublin there's food poverty in New York as and so often um the chef is is I suppose trying to um uh become more active and there is a certain responsibility one of the speakers david kinch from um is a three star three mission star chef in uh, in manresa in um in california like said like it's it's um there's a responsibility um uh for the chef um particularly when they have a, a profile to speak out and and being uh, as as he said being ethical is not um is not an option like one, once you get into that position, you have to be ethical, whether it's about the food that you buy, the food you produce, or um, or trying to give back, and whether that's um, going to schools or going to um, uh, hospitals or nursing homes or like whatever it is. I think it's at every level people people need to um, need to eat well. Indeed, and um, I know with food on the edge, staging it is a phenomenal cost, and I know uh, you rely heavily on the goodwill of a lot of people, the producers, and so on. 
Um, what kind of challenges have you encountered as part of all of that? I suppose, I mean, food on the edge, I mean, costs, um, we, we fly in everybody and um, and I suppose the event costs in the region of, I suppose, a quarter of a million to uh, to put on. And and uh, granted, we have we have some great support from um, uh, from from a lot of different parties and, and like all, a lot of the, the, the people involved in it volunteer Um uh, neither myself nor my wife take anything out of it it's really about and we try and I suppose use funds from our business to uh to to put it on because again i believe that that's that's the right thing to do but i suppose i think what we need is more more structured um uh assistance and i think that can only happen at government level like there's no this you can keep on trying to change things in the in the in the private sector and the private sector can sponsor the private sector but you need public funding um to uh to try and um and to change things because if that's not if the will isn't there at government level then um then you're constantly just going to be knocking your head off a wall and like the private sector can try and push as much as it wants and i think the private sector um has um uh, um for me puts up much more in terms of volunteering and everyone does everything for free um and the minute you go into the public sector everything costs money and everything has to be paid for and i think there needs to be a little bit more um um flexibility it's just there seems to be um um uh, a lack of a lack of will at the very top level to uh, to to make food like the central focus of um uh, of of of, a, of an Irish identity and culture. We perhaps need another symposium on public funding, maybe that on another day's work. Um, yeah. But obviously, in the last two years, you're about to stage the third one in October. Which if there there have been some great success stories, haven't oh, there? No. As a result of with chefs meeting producers and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, one of the things is 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 for the to bring the chefs to um uh, to the west of ireland and to introduce them to to the food i mean ireland is a is a is a, is a small country that that um, relies massively on exports i mean our beef and our fish and um for the example for example kelly's oysters um that we brought the chefs to um the first year um down pascal colgan and and kelly um german has taken part in the in the food village um, uh, Nathan Outlaw and Albert Adria subsequently bought mussels from him, which they didn't know before. I think Noel as well is sending honey to Dubai. Correct. Um, and like the small little stories like that, that for me, it's like I suppose like the, it's almost like the ripple effect of food on the yes. edge. And we've also had chefs go, um, uh, say for example, in where uh, the head chef of my brother's restaurant. Um, El Vicolo, he's now working with um, Sasu in Chef and Somalia as a chef de partie, and he went over to try and improve himself out of meeting Sasu with Food on the Edge. So, And I know one of my colleagues, Martin Ruffley in GMIT, recently went to Sasu as well on the back of, on the back, on so, the back of meeting him at Food on the Edge. So yeah. Martin was able to bring back, hopefully, into GMIT some of the culinary education yeah. side of things I think as that's well. the two sides of it. You have um, uh, education training side where chefs can um, um, uh, teach other chefs and network for them, network with them. And the other side is for that, um, the, the visiting chefs to find stuff like oysters or Connemara Mountain lamb or, or Marty's mussels, um, all of whom export anyway. And then to, because they are, those channels are already there and then go, God, I would love to have 
those muscles in my restaurant in London. And that's possible because they already, um, they're already that. We, we, for a long time, we have exported food. Um, so I think that we, we need to do that, but we need to export, um, I suppose, branded products. We, we need our producers to say, these are my muscles or no, this is my honey, as opposed to um, exporting a, a generic product that someone else is going to label. And I think for a lot of the 20th century that happened, our mussels, our oysters all went to France and the French people eat them um, thinking that um, thinking that they're, um, uh, that, they're, that they're a French product. So we really need, I think that the new generation of producers need to uh, really assert themselves in terms of their branding, like not in, in any overtly commercial way, but really just to identify their product and then hopefully we'll have more um, uh, like uh, DOs in terms of our food in Ireland. Fantastic. Well, JP, I don't know how you find the time to do all that you do. And, you know, fair play to you. You're a wonderful ambassador here in the West of Ireland. And you have another new project in the pipeline as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a little cafe and wine bar called um, Tartar, which is going to serve Tartar and, uh, and oysters. And it's very much inspired by my, my travels to Copenhagen. In particular, um, uh, Christian Puglisi's um, restaurants like Raleigh and Manfred's, and I suppose we wanted to do a little wine bar that 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 served um, food that, uh, I suppose that had a similar philosophy of what we do in Anir and really focus on different products. And so I wanted to do a, an oyster dish and a tartare dish and pickled fish and and um, all do of these. Do you think the Galway palate is ready for for raw and? fermenting and pickling and uh, so on or? they probably like i mean we have an ear six years and they they probably weren't ready for that and so i mean hopefully in six years time they'll be ready for tartar um we're but at saying that um the the reason why we have a uh, have it as a as a cafe and wine bar is that during the day it's going to be a little sourdough uh, coffee shop with um, soup and sandwiches and salad and and so i know at one at one level we're trying to push the boat out at night but we also, I mean, you also have to play to the to the market. Sure. And um, I think initially when I spoke to my wife, I only wanted to do tartare and oysters. And she said, OK, we need something else. Uh, you need to make some money. <laughs> yes. She said, you can't do any more projects that lose you money. So uh, so we're going to try and, um, and do that. But I mean, it's combining kind of two different things. I always wanted to do a little sourdough coffee shop and I, and I wanted to have a place that specializes in tartare. And because we have the most amazing beef in Ireland mm-hmm. and and we're so used to cooking it. The same with the amazing fish. And if, if you look to Japan or you look to France and Spain in terms of tartare, um, there, there, there is a wonderful culture of, of eating raw food, even the vegetables. Um, we'll have loads of ve- vegetarian dishes um, in terms of like pickled chanterelles and um, different, uh, different hot um, vegetarian dishes. So like it's, um, for me, it's, it's just trying to, I suppose, extend the, the possibilities in terms of good food in Galway. Well, listen, JP, um, that's wonderful. And we want to wish you the very best of luck. Thank you. Thanks very much for talking to us. And can you just advise listeners perhaps where they might be able to find tickets for Food in the Edge yeah. if, if there are still some available? Yes, absolutely. There are still tickets um, available. And um, on our website, foodintheedge.ie, they will see a full list of um, uh, of speakers and they can uh, get tickets and book accommodation. It's on in Galway on the October the 9th and 10th. Um this year and it's taking place in the black box fantastic well i for one is i'm very much looking forward to it and i'm sure it's going to be a wonderful success again thank you thanks jp bon appetit yummy grubs up delicious mm. 
Straight into the thank yous now as we're out of time. Thanks so much to Jacinta for the interviews with Noel Leahy and JP McMahon. And thanks to Noel, JP and Sheena for being guests. Catch you next week and until then, bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit. <laughs>